Culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Ducker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by music historian Charles Hughes to talk about the medieval trend that swept the nation in 2020, bardcore. So, Charles, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular form of media? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a music historian and a historian of popular culture, um, and I've done quite a bit of work on country music and soul music and hip-hop and other things, and thinking about the ways that popular music and other forms of popular culture as well kind of shape and reflect particularly racial politics in the United States. I'm an Americanist and I do pretty contemporary history, so it was a bit outside of my <laughs> both chronological purview and the music I normally talk about to think about Bardcore. But but honestly, like I don't remember when I first became aware of Bardcore. It was probably in conversation with you about this trend that was happening of these Bardcore songs and these recordings that were being made on YouTube and elsewhere. And like the more I kind of got into them and looked at them, the more I realized that they really are quite fascinating in terms of yeah. not only what they're what they're sort of saying about these particular pieces of music or the people who are making them and the way they are engaging with the medieval past, which is obviously something I know very little about, <laughs> because like most U.S. historians, I'm incredibly parochial in terms of what I've done and what I've read. Nobody made you do a medieval field in grad school? Absolutely nobody did. There was nothing. Honestly, the most extensive medieval history I have had was my senior year of high school when I took AP European history with Mrs. Barbara Erdman. Shout out to Mrs. Erdman. But yeah, so obviously I don't necessarily have a lot of purchase on the way that this is specifically engaging with aspects of medieval history, but I was fascinated by bardcore as a kind of pop cultural phenomenon, mm -hmm. what it says about nostalgia, what it says about the use of pop music to help us understand history, and also just by the fact, to be perfectly honest, and I think this should be at the root of all, you know, pop cultural study, whether it's, you know, your career or whatever, like, and sometimes you should just be interested in something pop cultural because you think it's really interesting and kind yeah. of fascinating, and you know, one thing I love about your podcast is that that is so clearly where all of this is based, so... I sort of fell down the rabbit hole with this and, you know, I thought it would be really fun to talk about, but also the more I got into it, the more I realized that I think it actually speaks to some of the same issues that mm -hmm. my work in a very different 
chronological and, and, and geographical context speaks to, which was mm-hmm. not a connection I was expecting, but was kind of amazing to realize. Yeah, and this is definitely the kind of thing that my initial introduction to Bardcore was really just that, unsurprisingly, for most of my friends, with the exception of my friends from grad school, uh, I tend to be the only medievalist that they know. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. when this started to become a thing, I started to get a lot of people sending me mm. these uh, these Bardcore videos on YouTube. And uh, they're and they're they're really interesting. I I guess I guess I would say over the last couple of days in preparing for this, I spent a lot more time just listening to Bardcore for like a couple hours straight mm-hmm. than I previously had, and it's it's very relaxing in a lot of ways. Yeah. The sound is very pleasant. A lot of it's instrumental, and you know you can even kind of listen to it while working. I had a very pleasant morning listening to Bardcore while making biscuits. Excellent. And trying to get my kitten to not drink the buttermilk. Also, also quite the task. That's that Struggle. is true. That is true. Multitasking, having to do those two things at once, anything really with getting a kitten to not do what a kitten is trying to do is multitasking at the highest level. It so, is, yes. Yeah. So you know, really, like three things at once. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> so yeah. So what is Bardcore? Basically, it is uh, covers of contemporary pop songs with medieval instrumentation and sometimes with lyrics, which uh, sometimes. Uh, they have all new lyrics. In most cases, if there are lyrics, they sort of medievalize the pre-existing lyrics, basically. Yeah, I mean, most of them, and and there are, you know, like, as you discovered and as I discovered, like, there are literally thousands of these, and there are more every week. They're coming out, the creators of these, as we'll talk about, I mean, these are being produced quite literally every day. But the majority that I found, yeah, are, are instrumental. And sometimes the updated lyrics are just sort of turning the original song's lyrics into a kind of Middle English, sort of. Right. Um, so it's just kind of, you know, thy and thou-ing everything, mm-hmm. right? And then every once in a while, though, they will try to kind of make it more Middle Ages specific in ways that I will talk about a couple of examples of that. But but yeah, but almost all of them that I was able to find are just are just, um, are just just instrumental. And so they're taking these songs, these pop songs, these hip-hop songs, R&B songs, and basically anything, and transposing them onto medieval instrumentation and, and right. sort of giving it that kind of stereotypically medieval sound. Right. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of loops. A lot of loops. Boy, people got the loots out for this one. Like, yeah. loots have not had this big a moment in quite a long time. Whoever is out there making loots is really, I think, probably kind of making a fortune that they never anticipated. Absolutely. Like, the, whoever created loots is, like, just a couple levels below whoever created Zoom for who benefited the most from the last, the, the, the changes of the last two years. And speaking of that, this is very much a pandemic-specific phenomenon that according to an article from The Guardian, the birth of Bardcore is April 20th, 2020. Yeah, so it is, it's a 420. Uh, 420 yeah, is the birth is of just, Bardcore, birthday of Bardcore. I mean, and I, I saw that too, and I don't know if, if that was like, I mean, but it, it's perfect regardless of whether or not there yeah. is a direct, like, it's kind of perfect that it was 420. Right. <laughs> And seems to have been created by Cornelius Link, so who is a German web developer who just liked medieval music, and he uploaded his first medieval cover to YouTube, and uh, so the trend was born. And indeed it was. And it really took off very, very quickly. There had been 
a few, there are folks who are kind of cited as predecessors and who were making these videos in the 2010s. And of course, there have always been, you know, people have been making every kind of music everywhere, including this kind of anachronistic stuff. I mean, I'm sure there were people at Renaissance fairs 30 years ago, right. for example, who were doing similar things. But yeah, it really took off as a early pandemic phenomenon, very much through, you know, as kind of old fashioned as it's supposed to be, right? It is in, in some ways, a, like incredibly 21st century digital yeah. age phenomenon. You know, most of these folks are making the music on digital recording technology. They're uploading them to YouTube and SoundCloud and Spotify. They're discussing with each other on Reddit and other things. And it has become, again, there are literally thousands. There were just a couple I saw when I opened up the subreddit this morning. Somebody just did the Encanto songs, including We Don't Talk About Bruno. And uh, somebody did the Super Bowl halftime show. They took all the songs from the Super Bowl halftime show. And some of them they'd already done, but they had they medleyed them together into a bardcore version. So this is an excellent. ongoing thing. But yeah, very early pandemic. Very early pandemic. Yeah, and I think that that context is really crucial, especially because as a medievalist, I remember there really being this kind of moment earlier in the early in the pandemic where not only had there been this medieval meme culture that I think was already around, I think we were already seeing like the Bayou Tapestry memes and things along those lines had already begun proliferating. But that especially at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, remembering plague obviously yeah. took on a new cultural yeah. significance and people, and it's, you know, the Black Death suddenly became really relevant yes. in a way that the Black Death typically had not previously been relevant. Yes, absolutely. And like the isolation of those early months and the uncertainty of what was happening yeah. certainly provoked a lot of nostalgic musical impulses. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very true. That's one of the main functions of nostalgia in, in any kind of cultural way, right? Or really generally is to provide this kind of comforting... I don't want to say a comforting fantasy, but a comforting kind of alternative. And I think it definitely seems for whatever reason. And I think that the plague connection and the kind of the way in which for some reason the Middle Ages have become this very memeable cultural mm -hmm. historical space. Uh, yeah, it just it just kind of took off. And yeah, the the Bardcore creators themselves very much talk about how you know, whether they were thinking about the plague or whether they were just kind of living through a plague, right. they understood the connection between mm -hmm. why why we would kind of go back to this very odd but very, very clear evocation of the past. Yes. Yeah. And this real kind of mix between past and present as mm -hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Let's get into kind of more detail about uh, perhaps some of our kind of special uh, uh, specific examples of Bardcore that we touched on in uh, the enumeratia or recap section where, you know, normally it's a plot summary for a movie. Here there's obviously not a plot summary, but we'll, uh, we'll talk about some of the examples of Bardcore that we took a look at. And uh, one of the things that I want to kind of just kind of bring up throughout is that they're, uh, so they, you know, are on YouTube generally. And so they have a combination of uh, music, they occasionally, you know, melody, they occasionally have lyrics, and then they also incorporate to varying degrees visual culture, like very occasionally in the form of actual kind of produced videos, but more often in the sense of essentially a kind of single background image, which is the main image for the song. So in Cornelius Link's Pumped Up Kicks medieval style, this is kind of one of the, you know, this is that the creators is one of the earlier ones. 
And it is also one that includes the Bayou Tapestry imagery as uh, the kind of backdrop here. Yeah, so Cornelius Link is generally considered, from what I could tell, to be kind of the credited, the, the launch pad or the kind yeah. of origin point, even though there had been these other folks making um, medieval-style versions of contemporary songs before Cornelius Link, like, this is the guy who gets credited with kind of creating this massive phenomenon. And, you know, again, just to kind of reiterate how big this is, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of YouTube subscribers to the main creators of this. We're talking 50,000 Spotify listeners for Mm -hmm. several of them. I mean, this is big stuff. And yeah, so Link uploads, it wasn't his first video, but the Pumped Up Kicks video is, or the Pumped Up Kicks version that's uploaded to YouTube is generally speaking, I think the kind of first huge one. And it's really interesting because like in some ways it really sets the template, you know, Foster the People's Song Pumped Up Kicks, which was this big hit in 2010 or 2011. I can't remember exactly which one, but, you know, major, major pop hit, still very recognizable. It's kind of hanging on in, mm-hmm. in a time when, you know, a lot of even big hits are kind of, you know, have like three weeks when everybody knows them and then they're gone because that's how quickly things are moving. So it's definitely kind of staying with the culture, and so it makes sense that it would be it would be barred chord or whatever the verb is right. for this. And and yeah, it's instrumental. It is definitely like most of them centering the the melody and the rhythm and the arrangement. I mean, the musical mm-hmm. textures of this, I think, is one of the really interesting things about what's happening with barred chord because it is fundamentally a nostalgia movement that's based in sound. Mm-hmm. As opposed to lyrics or iconography, maybe a little yeah. bit of iconography, but like it's so interesting to me that so many of these are instrumental in part because it it doesn't it doesn't like it doesn't link up to the way that a lot of nostalgic musical movements are based in these kind of lyrical peons to the past, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. the way in which, oh, it was great in this period, or oh, let us return to the mythos of whoever, mm-hmm. which is actually how the Middle Ages has often been used in pop music in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Is this kind of iconography and, and discussion of, you know, Robin Hood and knights and, you know, Vikings Right, and, stuff. and there's a whole, like, medievalism and metal uh, exactly. thing that... Which, yeah, and in and prog rock, which is interesting. I noticed that prog rock is not one of the most kind of barred chord genres. I searched uh-huh. for like Jethro Tull or Yes or a few of the others, and they're not really there very much. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, I'm sort of surprised by this because like they were very, especially Jethro Tull was very openly like invoking mm-hmm. the, you know, the sound of this, you know, like Ian Anderson played a flute and was mm-hmm. like doing a lot of these things. But there's um, a lot of very kind of like classic pop hits. Very much so, and very new stuff. Yeah. Which really suggests to me something important about this, which is that, I mean, it is an, ex- and I say this with all love and respect for real, it is an incredibly nerdy thing, this whole thing. I mean, it oh, is oh, yes. unbelievable. <laughs> like, you're talking about a community of really nerdy people expressing their nerdery, which is Mm -hmm. wonderful, but it is also extremely mainstream because, and I I, I say that also with love and respect, because what they are doing is they're kind of, they're focusing on the sort of modern canon of Mm -hmm. popular songs. You know, it makes sense that we don't talk about Bruno or whatever would be the newest things because like, it's like these ongoing responses. So yeah, Pumped Up Kicks, it's, it's good too. I mean, it's really just kind of based around this using this kind of stereotypically medieval uh, instrumentation and rhythm and other things, just doing this otherwise pretty straight-up version, instrumental version of Pumped Up Kicks. 
and it's an interesting yeah. yeah I mean one, one other thing I would say too about the tapestry that is accompanying it because these are often they are often visual along with the and one of the things that's so interesting about it is like and this maybe gets us into thinking about what are, what are we looking towards in terms of what do we want the Middle Ages to do right like so that song is about basically someone at least thinking about like shooting up their school uh-huh. You know, like all those kids with the pumped up kicks are going to run, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And <laughs> the image that is chosen is of someone with a bow and arrow mm-hmm. pointing it at people. And like, I, I was looking at this, like maybe, maybe you have thoughts, because I was looking at that thinking like, is that cool that they're doing that because they're talking about the uh-huh. song's violence? Or is it like, like they're not pretending that's not what that song's about? I think there's an honesty in that. Yeah, yeah. And yet it also feels weirdly, I don't know, like it felt kind of strangely um, comical in a way that, or it made that comical in a way that Mm -hmm. not only doesn't line up with that song, but actually also doesn't line up with the way that most songs are used in Bardcore, you know? I don't know, but... Yeah, but it is interesting, I think, in that I I spend a lot of time talking about, especially on this podcast and with students, the question of medieval violence Mm. and the way in which we perceive the medieval past as being hyper-violent in a way that the present is not, Mm. uh, despite the abundance of evidence to the contrary, including things like school shootings. And so I think there is something really interesting about making this equivalence Mm. between medieval and modern violence in a way that isn't often exactly done because they want to displace this and make it seem like, oh, well, things were worse back then. We're better now. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was just, it struck me as very strange and it struck me as a kind of uniquely kind of, I mean, to be, you know, academic for a minute, I mean, it struck me as a uniquely discursive thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. To kind of do this song that's kind of nostalgically looking back at medieval instrumentation but it's also about a school shooting, and they're trying to link it to violence, but they're also, it, it just it struck me as very rich. A very rich yeah. text, as we would say. So. Yeah, and the, in the Bayou Tapestry, uh, meme culture is also, I think, so interesting, and it's uh, it's so fascinating to see that so many of the Bardcore videos, that is their backdrop. Mm. And it makes a lot of sense, because the, the Bayou Tapestry both kind of has this very distinct and recognizable visual style, but also, I think, something about the, phys- the kind of physical way that the that the bio tapestry is done is that it's often these sort of isolated figures or groups of figures that are then placed against what is effectively really just a kind of natural kind of cloth background mm-hmm. right and that that very much i think makes it possible for you to have this kind of flexibility with the bio tapestry in particular in a way that is different in some ways from uh, other forms of medieval art. I would say the, the kind of most comparable other thing, which we will talk about in a moment, is medieval marginalia. Mm-hmm. But that in particular, I think the bio tapestry, because you can move all of these pieces around so easily while still having it be very recognizably the bio tapestry, mm-hmm. I think it really lends itself uh, to uh, then kind of being used in this kind of really multifaceted way yeah now wow that's so interesting yeah totally because it is in it is this really effective correlation right between mm-hmm. the kind of memification of pop music like the memification of these kind of canonical pop songs yeah. right and the, and the portability of them mm-hmm. and the way that their meaning shifts so dramatically through these different kind of uses right mm-hmm. that's a really interesting kind of correlation and yeah. connection that is being made there with 
with perhaps a predecessor historically. Yeah, and that you and that you can you know you pick up pieces of things and move them around in mm-hmm. different ways, and that creates new meaning. Yeah, but that's very much the kind of thing that is that is being done. I think with with the Bayou Tapestry. Wow, so. and it's interesting too to think about how like. You know, again, coming thinking mostly from my like from what I'm I know about a lot of thinking about the kind of way that musical nostalgia works as a as a kind of social, cultural, and even political tool. And I mean, I've written and spoken about some ways that musical nostalgia can be really weaponized in some very mm-hmm. pernicious ways. But one of the things that I think is interesting also about bardcore is that. And this may be, again, a product of kind of the way that meme culture works is that, and, and the way that online community building works, is that <laughs> the point of these songs strikes me as opposite to a lot of the, I think, more problematic nostalgia movements, mm-hmm. which is the point of these is not to say, like, wouldn't it be great if everybody went back to this kind of thing? Right. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are some hard, so hardcore, bardcore people out there. Who would love, but like that's not that's not at the core of this. Instead, it's demonstrating that yeah. flexibility and yeah. saying like let's put these songs in here because it's 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 fun and it's soothing and it's sort of you know we love these songs and wouldn't it be funny fun and cool to hear them in this setting? But it's not suggesting like this was the real thing. And if everybody played lutes all the time, you know, where so much nostalgia in music is like. The whole kind of we must go back to this because mm-hmm. that was the real authentic thing. Yeah, and you got to be pretty intense to be like we got to go back to medieval. And I, I, I don't, I certainly don't want to. <laughs> exactly. and, you, know. you know, like so. I guess maybe that's, and I hadn't really thought of that until you brought up the bio tapestry. That there is this so much, and maybe that's why I find bardcore kind of wonderful in a mm-hmm. sense, right? Is that it's not. It's nostalgia that doesn't seem to be focused on the idea of wouldn't it be better if the music sounded this way and therefore, you know, was this way. And I think part of that is a choice that it really all is very much fusion that Mm. they're making the choice to have kind of very recognizable, you know, contemporary popular songs that evoke certain things about the modern world to people right. um, and that people connect with through that. Yeah. And uh, so kind of me, and so very much that is still a part of your listening experience is this fundamental modernity of the original songs. <laughs> Absolutely. That, and then just kind of playing with that by introducing this medievalism. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Hildegard von Blingen. Yes. Who uh, has, uh, so her, she generally has lyrics, and it seems like it, so she has a, a lot of stuff as her as adaptations mm-hmm. also of other recordings, which I think is is really interesting. And so including she has a version of Pumped Up Kicks, which adapts at Cornelius Link's instrumental version and then adds lyrics to it. She also, you know, she did she did Jolene, yes. which was a lot of fun. She's in a bunch. I, I think you suggested a few. I actually then ended up listening to a few more just because I was having a great time with her. Yeah. She's really good. Like, she's, of all of the folks, she's the one that I think her stuff just succeeds on every possible level. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the name is an interesting choice. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, a reference to Hildegard von Bingen, who is actually kind of known as having among her many, many talents, uh, as that actually kind of including music, in mm. fact. Uh, and so, you know, ref- uh, referencing that, uh, referencing, you know, one of the medieval women who people are more likely to have heard of because there aren't that <laughs> many of them. But I would say, you know, Hildegard von Bingen is 
I don't know, we're at least approaching something closer to a, to a household name. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that, I, that yeah, again, as a U.S. historian, I'm unbelievably parochial, and so I was not familiar with her. But yes, because of Hildegard von Blingen, kind of learned more about her. And it is interesting to think of her as this sort of, that von Blingen is, <laughs> is signifying not just, not, it's not just like a funny name that she takes, right? Yeah. Or, or not a funny, just a funny way to like take this name and make it, although, you know, bling, that, that, the bling thing was one of the only things that was yeah. like, because yeah. both because it was like a little too jokey and also because like, I feel like bling is such a, at this point, such a old fashioned way to like, right. say, it's like, who says bling anymore other than people who are just doing it purely ironically? Anyway, but, um... And maybe it is supposed to be ironic. I, I'm sure so, it is. I'm sure it is. And especially because, I mean, if you if you actually think about, you know, Hildegard von Bingen, the person, I mean, you know, she is a... She's a nun. She's a mystic. Right. She's somebody who, you know, is also very kind of learned in medicine, but she is a... She's not somebody who you would associate with, like, wealth or fashion. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not, like... It, it didn't... I, re- I will, I mean, with, with that, it, that reminds me, you know, like when I was kind of looking at this and when I first got into it, which I know we'll talk a little bit more when we talk about one of the hip hop cuts, but uh, like I was so ready to be kind of, I was so ready to be at least like, ugh, or to be actually offended with things yeah. which for reasons that we can talk about later in terms of how people normally engage with particularly hip hop. But, mm-hmm. um, but I, I will say, I mean, I was, I was really surprised pleasantly at the, there were very few of those moments. And, yeah. I wasn't that I wasn't that angry about von Blingen because yeah I mean it is and it, and especially when it becomes clear that she is very much signifying mm-hmm. on this historical figure in ways that go beyond you know just again the the sound of her name and haha isn't it funny to have right that? but they I mean you know like that these folks have done their homework too like yeah. I, one thing I noticed you know digging through YouTube comments which is as you know always perilous <laughs> but uh, but you know this. This is very much coming out of a real engagement with, not just with the music, but with a set of source material. Whatever they're doing with it varies, mm-hmm. but, you know, these aren't folks who just discovered this, you know, a day before they made the video. Right, and Hildegard von Blingen also is the one who, I think, does the most interesting things in terms of not only the melody and lyrics, but also in incorporating medieval visual culture. Yes. Since uh, she is, so she is, she has all these kind of you know backdrop images that she uses. They are generally drawn from medieval manuscript art, uh, a lot from marginalia, but not exclusively. And uh, she actually usually cites her sources, <laughs> which I very much appreciated. Yes. And even you know I kind of went and tracked down some of the manuscripts. Uh, so it's a lot mostly of kind of 13th and 14th century manuscripts that she works with, and she often will kind of take an image from one manuscript and juxtapose it with one from another in ways that are then kind of making making these connections that then uh, have it feel relevant to the uh, the kind of lyrics and uh, meaning of the song. Yeah. But she does really kind of creative visual things yes. as well, which I thought was really interesting. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. She's she's very much, and, and her, you know, she does feature vocals on, I think, on all of her stuff. And she is taking real care and, I think, real thoughtfulness in the way that she's adapting the lyrics. Like, you know, Jolene is a really yes. great example in some ways, I mean, of many things. Like, it is perfect that Dolly Parton would be meme, or would of be bar chord, because Dolly Parton has almost become a meme, mm-hmm. uh, in a sense. And, um, but, uh, I mean, I, Dolly Parton's role in our culture is so fascinating right now mm-hmm. in ways that make it very unsurprising that she would be featured here. But what I love about it is that with Jolene, 
Hildegard von Blingen is is kind of using that to sort of draw connections with a certain kind of ballad tradition that Parton is mm-hmm. absolutely very much directly indebted to. Yeah. While also kind of reframing that song within through the sound and through the language in a in a in a medieval context in a way that I think would be perhaps both surprising to listeners but mm-hmm. also again this kind of historical signification, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, and and I mean I just again I thought that she's so good at what she does in every respect that uh, I was I was very impressed with Jolene in particular and yeah that was one that in some ways I was surprised at how well it mm-hmm. worked and and yeah and I think it is so interesting you know that we're kind of bringing Dolly Parton into this because there is and we've talked about this in the context of Elvis before mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and the ways in which there are these kind of discourses of sanctity yes. that are not that different from ones that we see with medieval actual yes. you know saints in the official you know sanctioned by the Catholic Church sense. And Dolly Parton definitely has a bit of that as well. Oh, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of this kind of like, there, I mean, there's so much kind of image and iconography uh-huh. of yeah. Dolly Parton that is kind of being promoted right now. Yes. And, and I find that really, really kind of interesting as well, that you have these kind of connections that are being made, not necessarily intentionally, but just as kind of part of our culture that we kind of transformed yes. her into this living saint. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, seeing I mean, her show up in this other kind of form of medievalism is interesting. Oh, totally. I mean, she, she uh, as you know, I could talk a long time about Sally Martin, about <laughs> the kind of complexities of where she right. where she stands right now. And I mean, because, you know, she is one of the great artists of her century or any century. She is a force for good in the world. She's an incredible songwriter, a great singer and performer, great musician. And she's also becoming this, this like an icon in kind of mm-hmm. the most literal religious sense and a superhero and, and in ways that I think can be kind of detrimental to her ultimately, but that's a whole, that is a whole other conversation, but yeah. Yeah. And they also kind of refuse to admit any flaws whatsoever. Yes. And and like, and I also like, this is, this is such a weird, unimportant thing, but it's like, I, as much as I love that she does Jolene, it is part of the thing where it's like, I really want people to listen to, to other Dolly Parton songs. Right. <laughs> like she has so many great ones that deserve to be celebrated and could be incredible, actually in a bardcore context mm-hmm. specifically. You know, like Code of Many Colors would be a perfect bardcore mm-hmm. song in a sense, right? But but I mean, that's again, that's an unimportant thing. But yeah, it's, it makes sense that this version of a meme culture mm-hmm. experience would, would speak to her and speak yeah. to her song. And I'm just very glad that it, it was done so effectively yeah. and really, really kind of beautiful. And, and that's, yeah, she's got a lot of those. It's, yeah, I was very impressed mm-hmm. kind of listening to her, to her catalog as, because even though most of them are at least competent and some of them right. are quite good, like hers are actually, I think, I think they just really work. Yeah. And I think they, the lyrics are clever. I yeah. think they're well done. Yeah, Totally. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, kind of in relation to the uh, like what you brought up, right? That there are kind of you know that there are other Dolly Parton songs. That from what I was coming across, it seemed like there are relatively few like deep cuts mm-hmm. in Bardcore. Yeah. That it's mostly things that are incredibly recognizable, yeah. even to a perhaps kind of fairly uh, casual music listening audience. Absolutely, yeah. This is not a crate digger kind of phenomenon. I mean, this is. This is about what's popular and what's yeah. mainstream. And and again, I, th- I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's meant to be a celebration of 
pop music yeah. in all genres and in a celebration of like pop music's central function, right? The central gift of popular music is that it reminds us that we're not alone, right? Like mm-hmm. pop music is designed to create that experience. Mm-hmm. And this particularly, again, coming out in the early months of the pandemic, when folks were able to find each other and find pleasure through mm-hmm. these and then answer, like call and respond with each other with these different cuts and these YouTube threads where they, you know, laugh about it and argue about it and stuff mm-hmm. and, and create their own lyrics. Like the songs that don't have lyrics attached, you can bet there will be at least four people in the comments who have created their mm-hmm. own medieval lyrics for this. Yeah, no, this is a this is a this is a statement about what the kind of canon is right now, or at yeah. least the kind of the, the, the playlist, right? The kind right. of big because, I mean, I yeah, I wonder, too, if it's just... I, I mean, I don't know what the folks who are making these necessarily are listening to, but, you know, you want these... If you create these these bardcore songs to kind of speak to a big audience, and you're going to want to find things that people know. And, yeah. And there's a really great historian named Carl Hagstrom Miller who I saw give a paper about YouTube, just, just like YouTube amateur performances mm-hmm. of various songs. And one of the things that he was saying in this, if I don't, you know, I'm trying not to terribly paraphrase him because he's brilliant. I'm sorry, Carl, if I get this terribly <laughs> wrong. But, uh, you know, one of the things he was saying is that, you know, this is the creation of music's kind of communal use mm-hmm. in a in an isolated digital context. And that was pre-pandemic, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I find them to be... I kind of love that they're all the really well-known things because they create that instant, that instant realization, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's, you know, it, it's gin and juice or, oh, it's uh, bad romance or, mm-hmm. oh, you know, and, but it's not just that, which is great too. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk more about this later when I get into some of the background of medieval music, but I think it is important to recognize that the medieval musical culture that they are drawing on for this is very much a culture that is about performance Mm -hmm. and performance in communal settings. And uh, that, you know, very in that, you know, it's very much kind of finding ways to recreate that in the digital space. And I think, yeah, kind of thinking about these synergies between modern communal public performances of music and medieval public performances of music, and then how all of this is being transposed into this digital setting. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting things going on there. Yeah. I mean, these are are pop traditions talking to each other, right? This is, you know, this is a, this is a kind of reclamation of the reality that, at some point, basically every kind of music was pop music, right? Yeah. But yeah. That, but yeah, the specifically, and again, that's where it it really differs from a lot of other kind of purposefully anachronistic, nostalgic-based music mm-hmm. trends, right? Is that it is not trying to rarefy these things or yeah. put them in these kind of elite spaces. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's trying to take them out, right? That I mean, I don't know that we assume that, you know, like... like I don't know that people are thinking that the music of lutes and flutes and and bards, I I don't know that they're associating it with high culture in quite the way that they're associating, say, classical music with high culture and other things, or opera. But there's something similar at work here where I think there's a kind of reminder that's so wonderful here, as you're saying, that like these are, (laughs) like any music tradition, it emerges out of a desire not only to perform and to connect with an audience but also it has to inherently in order for it to work be connected to whatever's happening right then right that like 
you know, that, that the bards and minstrels of earlier centuries have to understand what people want to hear and hear mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And that is not a process of saying, you know, well, I'm going to give you the most uh, serious, somber, you know, mm-hmm. like these are, these are rooted in the same kind of musical impulses in some way that contemporary pop is. And I think that's yeah. another really cool thing about this is that it is across the centuries and in an incredibly different context, speaking to those same things that you mm-hmm. talk about. Yeah, so so let's also now talk about the uh, the other kind of uh, the other kind of genre of music that gets bardcore, yeah. uh, and let's talk about some of the uh, the bardcore hip hop yeah. tracks. Oh, I was scared when I found all those bardcore hip hop. I'm like, oh god, here we go. Because you know, I there is nothing more tiresome. I mean, just there's nothing more tiresome than white people yep. doing like ironic, particularly like either anachronistic or kind of sonically ironic versions of hip-hop. It is the most tired thing in the universe. You know, we were talking before about, like, the Napster era. And, Uh like, I can... And I was one of these folks. I'm not pretending, right? Like, everybody I knew, every white person at least I knew in the dorms when we were in college had that on from Napster, had the gin and juice version, the version of gin and juice by the band The Gourds, which was kind of a country version of Gin and Juice. Uh-huh. And there was that other one that was even worse, and I don't remember who the artist was, but they did Boys in the Hood by Eazy-E, and it was like this acoustic, simmering, like, white boy guitar thing version. And, like, and again, I'm not saying I didn't like those. I didn't never like that one, but I knew the Gin and Juice one pretty good, right? But, like, th- the way in which hip-hop gets utilized so often by particularly white folks who are trying to kind of create a kind of ironic musical statement. And as much as I think Bardcore is coming from a place of love, I think it is coming in part from irony, right? But like a mm-hmm. different way. But with hip-hop, like the t- ugh, the primary impulse seems to be ha-ha, right? Like, yeah. and, and of course it's tied up with what minstrelsy is about, blackface minstrelsy, right? Mm-hmm. And about the legacy of what blackness means in the United States and what black music means in the United States. So... When I heard, or when I saw that there were all of these bardcore hip-hop tracks, and, like, the the video thumbnails were, like, you know, <laughs> like, Snoop Dogg's head on a, like, you know, ruffle-collared medieval person, right? I My first thought was, oh, here we go. Like, this is going to be the same shit. And it's, yeah. right... And especially because medieval studies has, you know, it's demons that it faces in terms of the way and the ways in which medieval history has very much been co-opted by white supremacy and has been kind of made into or used for these kind of discourses about whiteness and quote white identity and, and, you know, and I'm going to talk later about the fact that, you know, we, they're obviously, you know, it is very specifically, this is centering a kind of music, which is specifically, you know, Western European music that would have been mostly familiar to kind of primarily white Christians. Yes. Uh, totally. And so especially given that that is, you know, part of the background here, uh, it, it certainly would be understandable to be uh, a bit apprehensive. Ugh, I really, I... And again, it is partly, too, the way that, you know, with the things that I think about, you know, like, and I know that, you know, you've talked on the podcast and just in general about the way that medieval history has this, or perceptions of medieval history has this politically nefarious purpose in terms of nostalgia or this kind Mm -hmm. of identification for white folks. And I mean, as someone who particularly studies country music and Mm R&B, 
it's very similar. You know, like I'm, I'm constantly talking about the ways that re racially reactionary white people, not mm -hmm. just like even just like guard variety, like openly reactionary white people will weaponize black music as a way of mm -hmm. trying to make this kind of horrible point. <laughs> right. right. And, you know, and so like the, Thinking of that as a, I, that was, I was positive that even unintentionally, yeah. that's where this was going. And I thought, if nothing else, they were going to try to rap. Like I thought, mm -hmm. like they're going to, or they're going to try to do the lyrics, you know, the same way that the Gourds did Gin and Juice and sang it with this big over the top twang, mm -hmm. you know, or the way that, right, they're going to do that. And maybe that was like extra reason why I'm so glad that these, like almost all of them are instrumental. Yes. Nobody's yeah. trying to do it. I haven't found a single hip hop one that does this, which hmm. is, I mean, they're, they're probably they're out all there. instrumental. Yeah. They're probably out there somewhere, but like none of the big ones, like none of yeah. the ones with hundreds of thousands of views yeah. have like, I don't know, like some, you know, dude rapping in middle English lyrics about like Long Beach. Like, I, right. you know, so that was, I cannot express my relief. Like yeah. I would, we would be having an entirely different right. conversation yes. if we had gone where I thought it was going. Which again is another reason why I was so surprised and so pleased at this, yeah. um, because I have grown so weary and so cynical. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, those those songs did actually seem to come from a kind of love and respect for the music. To, I mean, in the same way as I think a lot of them do, and yeah. I I didn't see a kind of difference per se in terms of the uh, the way that that was approached in the hip hop material. I agree. I mean, my, my take was on that, like you know, in the one that I pulled out that I thought was particularly effective was the version of of Cream, mm -hmm. Cash Rules Everything Around Me by the Wu Tang Clan, which is produced by Beetle the Bardcore, who's another one of the major creators, and and Beetle like focuses on hip hop. Like I think they do other things, but. But, like, hip-hop's their, their thing. Like, they're the mm -hmm. ones who made the Super Bowl halftime show one. <laughs> um, and the reason that Cream really stuck out, in part, was because uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, Wu Clan retweeted it. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, you want to talk about a vote of confidence for anything oh, yeah. to get retweeted by the Wu-Tang Clan. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we should all be so lucky. But, like, I like that they were into it. I like that they mm -hmm. liked it. They wouldn't have just done that if it was some bullshit, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and then when I listened to it, like, and it's very true of the, many of the others, too, is that because they're instrumental, what they're doing is, or the effect that they have, mm -hmm. is that they demonstrate just how effective these tracks are in any musical context. Mm -hmm. They're showing the kind of sturdiness and depth, and again, the portability or the flexibility mm -hmm. of these songs. And I think it's really, you know, it's a thin line because, like, you could, you could look at this and say, well, oh, this is the, another example of trying to place hip-hop within a set of, of Western white musical standards mm -hmm. in order to say, oh, see, it's legitimate, right? Like, oh, see, these are legitimate because they do all the things that European music does. And that's just as racist and colonialist right. and terrible. Of course. But, but I do think there is a value to saying, like, the things that you're hearing in hip-hop records express many things, including those stand, you know, like mm -hmm. that, that understanding hip hop, which is so often dismissed and derided, even mm -hmm. now, even yeah. like 50 years after the thing came out, yeah. right? Or the thing started still derided as being not music or being whatever. Right. It's like that the Beatle the Bardcore in particular, who does the hip hop tracks, but others who have done them as well, like they're showing like, no, I mean, did they actually work <laughs> if we just put, you know, a flute yeah. and a lute and a, and a, a kind of, you know, Bodron style drum or whatever behind it. And I kind of love that because like, yeah. 
it's it's allowing the listener to respond to those tracks mm-hmm. on levels that they likely were responding anyway. Yeah. But it kind of centers that. It doesn't center, mm-hmm. on the other hand, like not to keep not to keep coming back to Chita Juice and to <laughs> thing. Or like the ukulele thing a few years ago where oh, everybody God, was doing yes. the ukulele versions Ugh. of hip hop and R and B, which was just equally horrible. But like those are seemingly designed to say like isn't this funny that we have the white person doing these lyrics about, you know, about this very sort of stereotypical distorted version of what we think hip hop is about? Isn't this funny, you know? And this what, didn't seem like it was, it didn't seem like it no. was trying to be funny. It seemed like it was, I think this style of, I think this, you know, style or inst- like kind of instrument pattern of music is interesting. I think this melody is good and interesting exactly. and I'm going to bring them together. Exactly. And like, and they, and, and I think, there's a, and this may be a very 21st century kind of thing in the way this is happening, or a very kind of digital age, meme age kind of way to do it, which maybe relates to what you're talking about with, with medieval history and the way I've seen other periods of history be used in terms of memeing and social media. is like, they, they're funny, they're lighthearted, but they're, but they're also sincere. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like they've been, they figured out a way. They, those kids, those kids with their parkour. <laughs> yeah. Man. Um, oh, this is awful. When did I become this person? But um, at least I'm not yelling at the kids. That's, I guess, a good thing. But, We're saying good for you, kids. Exactly. Keep doing what you're doing. Anyway, but uh, it's like the, the, this age and this kind of understanding of how culture works now it like it can be sort of like funny and we can we can kind of be lighthearted while also in in a somewhat ironic way mm-hmm. but it's not making fun of those things right like yeah. like you said yeah. and it is a very complicated thing to to kind of parse but i really agree with you i think that is what they're doing and it's it seems so very right now it mm-hmm. seems so contemporary in the way that they are packaging and presenting Everything about this, the music, yeah. the history, the iconography, etc. And I think it also speaks to the kind of complicated relationship that Bardcore has, I think, to nostalgia. Because when you have uncomplicated just nostalgia for the medieval past, <laughs> most of the time when you see that it has overtones of white supremacy and yeah. let's go back to the great white past, it also often has uh, links with misogyny and let's go back to the great past when, you know, we had the values of chivalry and, you know, women didn't get mad when men opened a door for them or, right. and, you know, let somebody rescue them. Uh, and yeah. that's, I feel like most often when you have just uncritical nostalgia for the Middle Ages, that's often the way in which you see it. That yeah. the, the people who are fascinated by the Middle Ages don't necessarily think that we should go back to the way things were back then. Yeah. And then the other kinds of ways that you see nostalgia for the Middle Ages, I would say that kind of come up are, have been actually around the pandemic and often tend to be like intense also oversimplifications. So yeah. You know, oh, back then, you know, medieval peasants got more days off. And so, you know, <laughs> let's, let's go back to, you know... <laughs> Right, serfdom. Right, you know, let's, we're, go, let's go back to serfdom. We're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. Yeah. Right, or the, you know, everything got so much better for workers after the Black Death. Why don't right. we do that? Right. That's the other kind of nostalgia you see, which is, you know, very much a kind of oversimplification of, uh, of all those dynamics yeah. uh, in terms of kind of medieval uh, sort of labor right. relations. Totally. That I think the relation that this has to, to the medieval past, it's, I'm trying to kind of put my finger on exactly what it is because I don't think it's, it's not purely nostalgia. It's not purely right. saying kind of let's go back to that. 
it's saying let's kind of put these elements from the past that we find interesting or useful or valuable in conversation yes. with the present. Yes, totally, totally. And and let's do it through the most future-minded way of yeah. thinking about how music works. Because even beyond the means of production, like which for a historian, I rarely say the means of production. So I can count, I can check that off my quota for the year. But uh, beyond the means of production, right, and beyond the way that this is kind of decentralizing the the notion of who is, who's a creator and who's a musical, mm-hmm. you know, like these are all really wonderful musicians, whether or not you like the Bardcore stuff. And they're, none of them are professional musicians, right? right. Like none yeah. of them are doing this for their job, although I hope they're able to monetize this. I hope so. I mean, you know, 500,000 YouTube yeah. views. I hope somebody's getting something. But, but I think that there is this way also that they are trying to find a usable past, right? Which is something mm-hmm. that historians, as you know, we talk about all the time. Yeah. And it's a weird usable past because it's also like about as much about the music of 10 years ago uh-huh. and, the, and the nostalgia of 10 years ago. Yeah. Like what is usable from 10 years ago? Right. Or what is usable from the 90s? Mm-hmm. Which like I know the 90s was 30 years ago, which is more than I sometimes like to admit. But it was only 30 years ago. <laughs> right. Right but it seems like because of the world we're in now... And the way, you know, um, the writer Simon Reynolds talks about this idea of retromania. And he postulates that in, and this was a book he wrote, you know, I think about a decade ago now. He suggested that, you know, one of the reasons why there seems to be more and more focus on the musical past in Mm -hmm. particular is because things are moving so much faster and we're so kind of looking for a a, a rooting in the past. And I think that's true. I, I, my disagreement, or not my disagreement with Reynolds, but I, I don't know that that's a necessarily a new phenomenon. Uh-huh. But what it's, what is new is the ability to do that. So, like, yeah. if somebody in Germany or wherever wants to make a bardcore version of something, they have the accessibility in terms of the. To, I mean, if they have the technology or they have the ability, they can just produce it, and they can kind mm-hmm. of center their own statement about the past. And so it can become this kind of noisy, but also I think really interesting way that people are arguing about history. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw I saw historical arguments. I don't know if you did in some of the YouTube comment threads, like the Jolene one. There was this whole mm. thing. I mean, again, a whole thing. Like imagine in a YouTube comment thread, the whole thing. But there was a whole thing about like Jolene. <laughs> it sounds like some mom millennial shit, frankly. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> not to be, not to put, to, you know, go, go listen to that episode, y'all, if you haven't listened to the, the Mom Millennial episode with Murray Park. But, uh, like, somebody was saying, like, oh, if Jolene was there in the Middle Ages, she would have been burned for being a witch because she took her, the man away and it was a, she was a temptress. And it started this whole, you know, again, a So whole did thing. people weigh in on the fact that, well, actually, witchcraft is more of an early modern phenomenon than a medieval one? Yes, they did. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm and, glad somebody did it so I don't have to. Yes. And then it... Again, believe it or not, it completely collapsed beyond any kind of reasonable. And then it turned. I know. Imagine. But then it turned into the the good the good part about it was that it sort of turned into a very general discussion about what you're talking about and what you so often return to on this podcast, right? And I know you do with your students too, where it's like people transition from talking about whether or not Jolene was a witch or whether or not she would have been, you know, killed for being such. To having a discussion about why is it that we assume that the Middle Ages were worse in every respect. Right. Or why is it that we assume that the Middle Ages was better in every respect. And it actually mm-hmm. turned into a kind of weirdly cool reconsideration of the yeah. entire assumption that underlines what, what you're talking mm-hmm. about, about the way that we're... And I thought, like, 
that's a really cool opportunity that is being provoked by this stuff. Yeah. And but but isn't like it's not a necessary component to appreciating it either. You know, like and I find that's always the best when it can be both a source of enjoyment and and pleasure or interest and something that could really speak to something powerful. So as much as that YouTube discussion seemed to be going off the rails in every way in the ways that they always do, it was getting to exactly what you're talking about. And yeah. I and I and I would imagine that's happening elsewhere. That was just the one example that I saw. Yeah. And I think these are also so interesting in that most of the things that I cover on this podcast are examples of medievalism that while they're popular culture, they're produced very much at kind of elite socioeconomic levels, right? right? That the people who make the choices about what kind of medievalism goes on screen are people who make more, way more money than I will ever make in my lifetime as an academic. And it's interesting to see this kind of more, more in some ways actually kind of popular medievalism in terms of that, like, you know, you obviously need to have some amount of, I don't know, talent, I hope, you know, (laughs) generally, (laughs) but that you don't, as far as I can tell, need to have a kind of immense amount of money that an ordinary person can go and, you know, figure out, can you unproduce one of these things? That's what it seems. I mean, there are definitely, you know... This is the biggest change that's happened in popular music in some ways since the invention of the idea of popular music as Mm -hmm. a commodity, right? It's that with the digital age and the decentralization of the ability to produce and distribute music, that it creates an environment in which almost anybody Mm -hmm. can put something out there. And of course, that creates a whole bunch of consequences, some of which are very bad and some of which are very good and most of which are very complicated yeah um but one thing that is really evident in something like this is that it is allowing people who yeah do not necessarily i mean certainly don't have the resources that we would think of a major artist or even a kind of right you know even a full-time professional musician like Mm -hmm. again they're not going out i don't think and trying to make a career of this it allows them to be a part of this conversation and also therefore to be a part of a historical conversation Mm -hmm. um at this at the same time and and yeah, sometimes it's just, sometimes it's not explicitly about that. And a lot of it is, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, it was very clearly just a way for folks to kind of feel a certain degree of enjoyment and comfort. Right. But it, even when it wasn't explicitly about thinking through this thing, these things, it was always there under the surface. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that it goes on, the more that people are kind of thinking about that part of it too. And I don't know what happens when like, Bardcore becomes sentient, but you know, like I don't know if there's going to come a moment when it becomes too self-conscious. Mm-hmm. That often happens, but yeah, but it's always been conscious of these dynamics, yeah. and I think that's part of what makes it so interesting. Yeah, Lil Nas X hasn't weighed in on his Bardcore covers, has he? I don't believe so, and you know, I really wish he would. Yeah, I really wish he would. Yeah, um, I mean, what a perfect yeah. So there's a, a creator named Stan Tuff um, who's who's done a couple of Lil Nas X. Bardcores did Old Town Road, which I think might have been the first one I heard because there was a period in 2019 when I felt like all I was doing was t- thinking and talking about Lil Nas X and Old Town Road, which was fine because it was like, you know, my work and my interests and they just manifested in yeah. the form of, you know, a young black musician making a country record and then a controversy about whether that was, you know, legitimately country because he was black. Um, but, uh, Santop did that, and then he did Montero, you know, one of Lil Nas X's more recent hits. And, and again, they're really great. They're really, you know, 
they're cool. I love Old Town Road, the, the bar core of Old Town Road, because like it hints at something. And again, this this has to do more with like medieval cultural representation right. or the sort of the, the, the imagery and the, the what evokes the, the Middle Ages for us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I hear that, again, instrumental, and just you hear that instrumentation and you associate it with the song, right? Right. And it, it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, Old Town Road is a, it's a Western, right? I yeah. mean, it's about, and Westerns are so indebted to this mythos mm-hmm. of knights and, and like, you know, bandits and all of these kinds mm-hmm. of things that we can trace back in ways that obviously can be expressed far better than I just did. But like, I was like, Oh yeah, this works as that yeah. too. Like this could absolutely be a song about like, you know, I don't know, some, you know, some Robin rogue. Hood or something. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and then the Robin Hoodism of it too. I hadn't even mm-hmm. thought about this, like the Robin Hoodism of him, right? The idea that right. he is, I mean, he's obviously playing with a bunch of trickster traditions and centering trickster traditions from African-American culture. Mm -hmm. But there is a certain degree to which Lil Nas X, like, fooled the powerful, right? Or or got one over on the powerful. And that's one of the many, many reasons why he's just one of the most amazing Mm -hmm. cultural figures of our moment. But uh, there was a great comment. I think it was on that one. Somebody, I have the user's name. Oh, maybe I don't. But uh, one of the users on the YouTube thread said that, when he heard the bard core of <laughs> Old Town Road, that he was he was like, oh man, Lil Nas X has done so many remixes. I can't believe he hasn't done a bard core one of this himself, <laughs> which is absolutely true. That would be so fun. I oh, would man. love to see that. I'm actually kind of going for bard core. Just to see what he'd wear in the video would be. The video would be so good. <laughs> and, you know, he, yeah. Because his outfits are iconic. Oh I my mean, God. I mean. I, I would love to see his, like the medieval, like the medievalism of like the outfit that yes. he did for the bard core video. Oh my God. Well, then now this has to happen. So yeah, everybody listening needs to tweet at Lil Nas X because I'm sure nobody yeah. else is. Just tweet at Lil Nas X and tell it'll him just be that. you, and he'll be your best, and then he'll be your best friend. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, and that, and that really is the goal of my life now. Yeah, is to be best friends with Lil Nas X. So. That's a good goal. Yeah, yeah, but it is perfect too because it is like you know what a perfect manifest again in all the good ways. What a perfect manifestation of this kind of digital age meme and remix culture. Mm-hmm pop superstardom. I mean, he is that in so many ways. You know, the writer Chris Malanfi talks about that. Like, like Lil Nas X can only be understood in the context of of these changes in the way that music is created and yeah. distributed and the way that for a new generation in particular, there are just these kind of new ways of dealing with it. And as, you know, I think all of the barcore creators that I found are all pretty young too, right? Uh-huh. Which also suggests that this is very much a movement of kind of, you know, people in their 20s and 30s, which is great, but also I think indicates part of why this is happening the way it is. Yeah. So do you want to talk about uh, about our uh, assorted Africa covers? (laughs) I mean, we have to. Right? I I was not at all surprised that Africa had been, the Toto song Africa had been barred chord because as we've talked about um, already, like the, there's a certain class of pop song that has, have become memes of them of themselves yes and like other another one is never going to give you up by rick astley which is bard court as well of course yeah and but but africa by toto is if there's any song that represents the way in which pop songs are being completely repurposed in this kind of in, in recent years africa by toto is one of them it was this huge hit that was then kind of 
it wasn't even like it, it didn't even turn into kitsch. It just was kind of like forgotten or not really mm-hmm. talked about. And then at some point, people have written about this already, right? But at some point, Africa came back, and then there was the whole thing when Weezer decided to cover it, and they had a, right. like, and like now it's a meme in itself, but it's also a meme that people love unironically. Yeah. Like I was at a wedding there with. Like, where that was, like, the last song. It's, like, playlist. a staple of wedding playlists now. And people lost it. Like, yeah. it was, it was, like, I mean, I couldn't believe how apeshit people went for yeah. Africa by Twitter. But, yeah, it is, so it makes perfect sense to me. And it was one of the first ones I looked for mm-hmm. in part because it's, it's meme on a meme, which is what we're at now. But it was even more interesting <laughs> than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and uh, I will also say I found it very, very charming that uh, a couple of them had a kind of assortment of animals from the Bayou Tapestry (laughs) that they used as their backdrop. Uh, There was also one version of Africa that had a kind of new set of lyrics that were specifically about the Crusades, which I want to mention because (laughs) in general... The bardcore movement tradition, yeah, I think does does not strike me as something that has these connections to white supremacist narratives per se, with the exception of the lyrics for this song, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which uh, use the term Moors, which I have talked about before as being a term that you know there is no group that actually used that term to describe themselves. It's also a term that often gets used, especially in the context of talking about Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula. And the kind of force behind that tends to be associating that Muslim population exclusively with North Africa, despite the fact that by the time, you know, which it was just about basically saying that they're foreigners, despite the fact that once you're in the, you know, say 11th century, much of the Muslim population are, you know, converts descended from the Visigoths. Right. Yeah. So this is a term that, you know, historians in this, the year 2022, oh God, it is 2022. It sure uh, is. That we tend to (laughs) shy away from using. Yeah. You know, so we have the kind of uncritical use of that term. And in general, the force of the lyrics, they're sort of from a crusader's perspective. Yeah and uncritically present the Crusades as righteous. Yeah. Which very much has its, you know, overt connections to white supremacist appropriations of the medieval past. The Crusader cry, Deus Volt, is one of the (laughs) kind of rallying cries uh, uh, for white nationalist groups. So the, you know, and, you know, the fact of the Crusades that, you know, what the Crusades are is that they are, you know, a religious war targeting Muslims that also spent a lot of time, you know, running across Jews whom they also murdered. So, you know, that's, that's the Crusades. Which is not, Uh, not mentioned in the, uh. Not mentioned in the song, no. Um, yes, and uh, so yes, it's there. There aren't no legions strength that there could ever be Lord bringeth rain upon Jerusalem. Yeah. So. Yeah, so the, and. So yeah, the chorus of Toto's Africa, the big line is, I bless the rains down in Africa, and here it's transferred to, you know, Lord bringeth rain upon Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I emailed you about this, and I I, I think I said, like, I don't know enough about the Crusades to know if this is problematic, but this seems to be Oh yeah, no, it's very, it's very problematic. Uh. <laughs> and, like, and like, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it, too, is that 
Toto's Africa, and look, I'm not going to hate on Toto's Africa. It is one of the most well-constructed pop songs yeah. ever, in part because it makes no sense. <laughs> like, And yet <laughs> right. people go, again, people go nuts. Yeah. Was I dancing at that wedding? Yes, I was. You know, <laughs> but uh, like in that song, Africa, and it's the title of it is Africa, but it just like, it just exists in this bizarre kind of vaguely mentioned, like it's not at all about Africa. No. Which on a census, is the census good? Because then that probably would have been bad. But, right. But like on the other hand, now they take, with this, there is clearly this attempt, even if they're not thinking about Africa in relation to this, which I think they probably are, but even if they're not, like to take this song and call it and keep the name Africa and have it be about the Crusades. Yeah. Like it's, so it's a sort of this funny, like two sides of the way that we kind of don't think about this sort of Africanness, right? Or this yeah. kind yeah. And, but, oh yeah, that again, if earlier when I was like, Oh, I, I walked into this, just be waiting for you kind of moments and didn't yeah. find many, this unfortunately was definitely one of them. Yeah. And so, and you know, we do have the, uh, you know, I mean, the, I mean, the origin of the term Moors is actually the, uh, the Roman, uh, province Mauritania, which is North Africa. Mm. And that's, you know, where the term comes from. And so we do have that kind of one overt connection, but yeah. certainly also, I think, you know, that there are these, you know, various parts of the world that get associated with non-white people. Yeah. And that that is, you know, and that is very much kind of how rhetoric about the Crusades in certain modern contexts often gets used is this kind of success of white Christians against yeah. non-white non-Christians. Totally. I, I love yeah. how, I love how one of the other versions that I found that did have lyrics, <laughs> like, the, and that, that one was just an up, like a, like a, you know. Medievalification. Yeah, right? of the, of the, of the, of the song's lyrics. And there they blessed the rains in Ravnica, which I had no idea what it was. And then I found out, I looked it up, and it's from Magic the Gathering. And like, hey, I mean, shout out to my magic, yeah, shout out to my Magic the Gathering people. I never was someone who played, but I knew people who did. Mm -hmm. And and there are obviously, as you'd expect, a lot of overlaps between this scene and D&D and -hmm. magic and LARPing and uh, something called historical fencing, which I didn't know what that was. I don't know what that is, but sounds fun. But I like, especially in light of the Crusades thing <laughs> that that this one person did. I'm I'm really really pleased with whoever decided not only to not make it weird, yeah. but also not even keep it Africa and make it about Ravnica, this kingdom in or this plane or whatever in Magic the Gathering. Like then right. that's that's how you do it, folks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that was clearly the uh, the better choice. Yeah. Uh, some of those, I guess, kind of theme I wanted to talk about with Bardcore before moving on to uh, some of the uh, kind of historical connections, I guess, is in particular, I think, kind of the things having to do with plague. So there certainly is obviously the timing, right, that this kind of took off during covid And uh, there is some sense of essentially this kind of idea that essentially we... We're having a plague and then we're kind of <laughs> looking looking back to plague and a plague that kind of brought got brought up in this context typically of uh, that's the worst plague yeah. at least than the current plague <laughs> right and also you know a lot of 
discourses that I've talked about previously on this podcast about kind of claims being made that, well, oh, our current response to COVID because it is ineffective is, quote, medieval. Right. Uh, right. Yes. You know, so a lot happening with, uh, you know, with the Black Death suddenly becoming deeply relevant yeah, in ways yeah. that it usually wasn't. Uh, and there was one which uh, the Get Lucky um, Bardcore had uh, kind of added the, the subtitle Get Lucky Not to Get the Plague. Yeah, totally. And the, and the, the, back, the background for that on the YouTube clip is it's it's basically uh uh you know it's it's like the Daft Punk video for for Get Lucky, but it's all it's like the plague doctor with the big bird mask and the like. It's yeah. clearly kind of riffing off that, which I thought was kind of amusing. Yeah, and so I think it is kind of interesting in thinking about you know exactly how important the kind of backdrop of plague is, especially in that it. In some ways, it's actually less prominent than I might have expected it would be, or less overtly prominent. But I think that that song was the only one I came across that had a kind of overt reference to plague. Yeah, there may be some others that I that I found. I don't remember, but yeah, that was the one that really stuck out. Yeah, Um, I wonder if it's partly that you know, again, thinking about musical nostalgia in times of trauma and uncertainty, and this is true. personally and you know societally or for individual communities right that one of the primary roles and a good one often for for musical nostalgia is as an era or as a a place of of comfort and escape right yeah so i think you know i'm not surprised that there Mm -hmm. weren't a ton of like yeah let's talk about the plague and and especially because again in april 2020 and may 2020 like Nobody really knew what was going to happen, you know, so... We thought it was going to be done by now. Exactly. And, like, yeah, so I kind of get that. You know, it's, like, the reason why, you know, you have this... Like, every time... um, It hasn't happened in a while, and that says something about the state of the world, but, you know, every... I remember every few years, it like, there would be these sort of... This outcropping of, of... This outcry, really... From, from people who would say, oh, the world is so bad. Where's all the protest music? And, of course, they weren't actually hearing the variety of protest right. music that was being made, but that they also weren't understanding that one of the primary responses to eras of real hardship is to try to find places to have fun, right? Yeah. And so, like, you know, dance music and, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, other things that are not explicitly about protesting or about... Yeah commenting so i hear bardcore in that tradition mm-hmm. i definitely and i think but but i think because of the plane connection there is that that kind of additional resonance yeah. that, that people can play with mm-hmm. um it is sort of odd because it is on, on the one hand this clear attempt to kind of escape into the past but the, but the past we're escaping to is the black death <laughs> like I, right. you know and, and i think that's conscious on some level so yeah. it's 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 really interesting that that's what happened. Yeah, although it is interesting in that a lot of the kind of specific moments that they're referring back to are you know a pre-plague. You right. know, not that there weren't you know, un- you know, not that there wasn't disease, right. but that you know it wasn't wasn't quite the Black Death. And a lot of the kind of specific reference are actually a kind of pre-plague medieval past. And yeah. then it make, it's making interesting connections because the a lot of the music is a relatively you know soon before our own plague. Right past and right. so these two kind of yeah. moments of you know yeah the the lull before the plague hit them wow that totally wow i had not thought about that at all that's totally true that yeah that's really interesting mm. um, csr our nostalgia for you know for 10 years ago right yeah for 10 years ago and we didn't know that we were going to have you know donald trump and a yeah. pandemic i know and and yeah and like the ways that 
what we're listening to from the past is all, I mean, this is, it's so, this is so self-evident, it's barely worth saying, right? But the, what we listen to from the past says something about where we are in the present. And again, that's personal, that's communal, and that's societal. And and I think that there is something, I was talking with a couple of really brilliant friends about this, the writer David Cantwell and a couple others, about how much in, in recent years there has been this kind of renaissance, no pun intended, of like, of covers and of yeah. and covers being a thing. And my friend Alexander Shashko was also talking about this and related to the pandemic, that there seems to be this new moment of reckoning with the past, but of also embracing it and finding mm-hmm. space in it. And it makes total sense. But I do think there is something right now about like, we're trying to find these spaces, even as we are also thankfully in the case of Bardcore, not using them to sort of, idealize a moment that we shouldn't and, yeah and especially given what you're talking about with you know the way that the middle ages are often taken in this way and the way that we can just get these horrific <laughs> horrific uses of that i find that pretty remarkable and pretty yeah. pretty important because i do think it is there's something happening right now with that and i think bardcore fits into it in ways that are far more positive than i would have assumed initially yeah, absolutely. And I and I do think there's kind of really interesting things going on with the ways in which Bardcore perceives the medieval past, mm-hmm. which uh, I'll, I'll kind of get into some of that now in the, uh, the Vera et Falso section. So first of all, I will say, you know, authenticity is very clearly not the goal here, which uh, is absolutely fine that, you know, that is a very kind of valid choice to make. And this, you know, would not be, you know, the genre that it is were authenticity the goal. Absolutely. Uh, Musical authenticity is one of the most kind of negative forces when people try to make music. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think I, you know, I'm not sure it would be interesting artistically, especially. There was actually a couple of uh, kind of articles that I read that actually kind of commented on uh, apparently Sting released this album. It did, yeah. Which was basically kind of covers of 17th century music, and uh, it seems to not be particularly well regarded. That's my understanding as well. I will admit I have not heard it. Yeah, I, I certainly have not, but that it kind of come it's like it's like too much essentially seems to be be the vibe based on the things that I was reading. And I thought that was interesting is essentially that there was this kind of interest, you know, not in following the particular kind of rules or structures per se in medieval music, but I'm kind of playing with these styles. Yeah. And that is something that I really kind of like about this tradition and about certain pieces of medieval media that I've encountered is that they have a way in which they kind of play with the medieval past in a way that isn't always purely accurate or quote authentic, but that isn't supposed to be and doesn't need to be and kind of telegraphs that that's not the goal in ways that kind of make it so that, you know, it it doesn't kind of raise my angry historian. Right. And this is an example of that. I will say, though, there is certainly a kind of tendency to sort of place everything in the Middle Ages at the same time, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, something that you see pretty consistently in a lot of medieval media. But so just to kind of place that in context, uh, I'll talk in more detail in a moment about the particular musical traditions that, that this mostly seems to be drawing on. But that would place us in about about kind of 12th to 15th century Western Europe. And basically kind of anything in or around there is fair game. So, you know, the Bayou Tapestry uh, is, uh, you know, coexisting uh, with, you know, instruments that would not have actually been kind of particularly common in Western Europe quite in, ten, in you know, 1070. We, we kind of have, you know, 
the Bayou Tapestry and the Black Death kind of showing up in sort of the same breath, potentially. You know, in Hild- uh, and, you know Hildegard von Blingen's uh, work where she kind of juxtaposes imagery, it, you know, comes from different geographical regions. It, you know, comes from, you know, a kind of, you know, a century or so of material. And even in Get Lucky, there is the, uh, and the you know, the Get Lucky, um, you don't have the plague, but there is the... The depiction in the back of the uh, the plague doctor with the bird mask, which is actually 17th century. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> um, so, you know, so there is certainly all of that. The other thing I will notice that I think it does raise some questions about what it is that we define as medieval and what are the kind of range of medieval cultures that we do or do not acknowledge. Mm. So that, you know, we are talking specifically about a musical tradition that, uh, well, in a moment I'll talk about how it is, I would say, a relatively kind of popular tradition. It is nevertheless a tradition that would mostly be associated with, like, you know, white Christian Western Mm -hmm. Europeans, as opposed to, you know, Jews or Muslims in Europe or the Middle East, uh, or even as opposed to, you know, increasingly we often kind of talk about a global Middle Ages Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that you know, medieval music does not mean just one thing in terms of there both being kind of different traditions across different regions, uh, and even in terms of there being kind of different traditions, you know, within different, uh, kind of, you know, for in different contexts, you know, that this is, you know, this is not liturgical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right. It would be fun to see liturgical music, which I'll mention more later, but uh, that, you know, this is not that musical tradition. So there's some amount of essentially a kind of medieval means this, which is very much the again traditional view of kind of what counts as medieval, with it being very particularly this kind of yeah, sort of to some extent kind of white Christian Western European context. And I think there's some question about the extent to which it links to this kind of Dark Ages imaginary. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was really interesting that there is a, uh, one article for ID Vice. Is it all the kind of the same thing? I guess. I, yeah, I don't know. I guess. Yeah. But so the author uh, Amelia Tanatarova. Wrote that there has always been a place in music for covers. It's refreshing and interesting to listen to songs we know and love through the stylings of others. But bardcore is different. It carries with it the weight of years of memes made about the medieval era and the bleak darkness of the time period that appeals to Gen Z's existential humor. There's something absurdly comforting about a, vi- a version of a song you know and love reimagined in a time more harrowing, disease-ridden, and calamitous than our own. <laughs> it's a reminder that humanity has been there, done that, and lived through worse. And who doesn't love a loot? Who doesn't? I mean, really. <laughs> and so I, and I'm not sure thinking about it that I actually totally agree with her because yeah. I don't actually think that I see in Bardcore this representation of a kind of bleak Middle Ages. Mm. But I, you know, you do have to kind of wonder to what extent it is that, well, things were bad that back then and they still made music and had a good time. Yeah. And in that is kind of inherent, this idea that, well, things must be better now, right? right. Yeah, and there is, I think, I agree with you. I think that, um, I, that's a really, it's a really good piece, but I think that, yeah, I think there's a little bit of kind of overstatement of the bleakness. Like these are not, like if anything, these are kind of conjuring a spirit of kind of play and excitement yeah. from this period. But I do think there is something that, that, that she mentions about the sort of existential humor of Gen Z mm-hmm. that I think that very much is a part of it, that there is a kind of <laughs> this sort of like dancing while the world is collapsing because yeah. what else are we going to do kind of thing and i think that that's actually part of what makes this so interesting mm-hmm. but i kind of agree with, i mean i do think there is a kind of they're playing off of the of the of the the either what they think is the reality of bleakness in the middle ages mm-hmm. or 
which is, I guess, a little different. They're playing off the fact that most people think of the Middle Ages as being this right. big time, which is not the same thing. Yeah. But but yeah, no, I that was that was funny when I read that too because I thought that, like, well, I don't know that that's actually kind of what they're doing. Although I guess that it it, it definitely is different than the kind of sweeping the glorious days of knights and vikings stuff which right. was also you know beyond all of the ways that this plays into our culture and even our political culture today was very you know that that's predominantly how metal and and prog rock mm-hmm. and other genres that that kind of have tried to engage with the middle ages have mm-hmm. done so so yeah it is different than that but yeah i'm kind of with you on that i don't know that it's entirely as bleak as she says it is but i think she is onto something with the idea yeah. that this is like reaching back to this calamitous period to help us kind of cope with our yeah, own exactly. calamitous period right but i will say ultimately i think the i think bardcore does speak to some kind of understanding of there being a sort of a playful medieval past a medieval past which had humor and had music and people had a good time and yeah. it just like sit around you know somewhere being gray and filthy until they died at the age of 30. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, really. That, that, I mean, that, that's very funny. But that's also true, right? Like the, the whole kind of nasty, brutish, and short yeah. thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I do, I do think that there is a kind of joy, a kind of joyous Middle Ages and a playful yeah. Middle Ages that we do see, which, uh, which I like. Which actually then kind of lead into the Historia at Veritas, where I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, specific context that this is uh, kind of most drawing on uh, through, I imagine, some combination of intentional and unintentional in various ways. Despite the name Bardcore, because, you know, the, the term Bard, I would say, arguably is kind of best suited to a kind of like early medieval Celtic context slash a kind of like D&D context, I guess, because mm-hmm. I think that's one of the D&D classifications is that you can be a bard. I think that's right. Yeah, um, I never really played D&D either, but that's my understanding. Too. I have never played D&D, but I have listened to D&D podcasts, no. and I don't know which is more nerdy. I think the latter, but that's also very much of our generation. It like, is, to listen yeah. To I'm too lazy to, I'm too lazy to play D&D, exactly. but I will listen to the D&D actual, like, at play podcast. Exactly. <laughs> but despite that... <laughs> So, but, you know, but so it's kind of using this term bard, I imagine, probably because of that sort of D&D context. But its main reference point, I think, is really troubadour poetics and, and uh, lyric poetry. This would be a tradition that, you know, the height of it is really the kind of 12th to 14th century. And when we talk about the troubadours in particular, we often talk about them as being located in and around southern France. And in terms of this question of it being actually kind of popular music, I think is really interesting because this is something that always was a vernacular tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is written in the uh, the Occitan vernacular. And when this tradition, you know, had wider influence in different regions, those are also mostly vernacular traditions. That there certainly is Latin poetry that has similar themes. But when we're talking about this poetic tradition, which is lyric poetry, which is performed, typically it is poetry that is very much intended as song and intended to be publicly performed, that it is very much a vernacular poetic tradition that gets uh, kind of transported to different places and then kind of written and kind of presented in those local different vernaculars. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it is really interesting. You know, there are ways in which this is a popular tradition. The other thing I will note about this tradition is that 
while it is a music and poetics at which we, you know, associate with a lot of the kind of classical image of, uh, you know, a kind of white Christian Western <laughs> Europe, one of the big influences for this tradition mm. is actually also Arabic poetry, mm -hmm. and in particular, the Arabic poetry of Al-Andalus of Muslim-ruled Spain. There's also a kind of major and very, very closely linked Hebrew poetic tradition in that context as well, which is, I would say more kind of meter-based than necessarily kind of musical per se. And there's certainly a kind of cadence, I think, to the way in which it would have been read, but it's not all necessarily musical. But mm. at least some of it, there would be actually kind of a, like women who are actually kind of trained as singers of poetry in mm. certain kinds of contexts. That, yeah. And and the musically too, I think there's a little, I mean, it's like the 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 ode, the ode. Yes. Yeah, like that, that there is, and, and actually... Um, even people who do work on the banjo, right, and thinking mm -hmm. about the way that the banjo as an African-based instrument, but was also a kind of global instrument. I know that, like Laurent Dubois and a couple other historians have mapped out some of the ways that even in these very stereotypically white European musical contexts, mm -hmm. that there was direct yes. influence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's kind of different discussions about that. You know, people have made the argument that essentially it's kind of coming out of basically uh, like some of these like women who were trained to kind of sing this poem and perform this poetry uh, basically got like taken captive uh, by one of the counts of the Aquitaine like and you know and the and you know and some of whom then you know will count William the ninth that actually is a you know poet you know a troubadour poet himself mm. so wow yeah and so you know there is this kind of you know so there's this kind of you know potentially really even direct connection but I would say you know most people would say that there there's kind of some at least process of influence uh, yeah. in terms of you know and, and that there is some kind of real connection there yeah yeah that's so interesting yeah and like the and the way in which the we've kind of reified this image of the troubadour as being like a white dude with yeah. some walking around with some kind of guitar-like instrument uh -huh. right and like the way that that continues to be our kind of go-to image for for a songwriter right yeah. or for yeah, yeah. The, like the, the the lineage of the troubadour image continues to be one of the things that is is really limiting in terms of how mm -hmm. we think about who is making pop music and who is making different kinds of it and what is yes. the quality that we assign so it's so interesting that you know even centuries ago uh -huh. not surprised right but even uh -huh. centuries ago that that particular the root of that continuing trope has been was was far more complicated than we yeah. usually thought, and also because we actually we know that there were also women mm. who were doing this, yeah. who were writing and performing uh, these uh, these songs. Uh, the the term is uh, so troubadour is technically a kind of male form. Troubirets is mm. technically the uh, the correct female form. Wow. Um, but you know we we have you know surviving troubirets poetry. Yeah. We got we got to get Troubirets back in the modern parlance. We do, like, yeah. You know, like Troubadour is still like used. I probably used it too. I shouldn't. I shouldn't front. But uh, wow, yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's and I will say, you know, it's really too bad because there's uh, there is actually you know there's a book that did that um, um, by uh, Meg Bogan that's you know really just a kind of collection of a lot of Troubirets poetry hmm. that I think is called the Women Troubadours, but uh, you know. Call, you know, playing on the fact that that's yeah. a term that people know, totally. but that is, I believe, unfortunately, out of print because uh, I think I had I had I had some students who you know scanned uh, more of my copy than they probably should have in accordance <laughs> with copyright laws. Well, we won't tell anybody. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's listening. No, I'm, I'm sure whoever you know holds the copyright to that book isn't listening to this. Yeah. And as I said, it's out of print, so you know that's fine, right? 
yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah, I had some students who were kind of working with stuff related yeah. to that for a pa- for papers. Yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah, and so you know, we we have even in that tradition, you know, other ways in which also in terms of gender, it's you know more complicated as well. Also, I've kind of touched on this already, but that it is very much a performance genre. So that, you know, troubadours both composed and performed, uh, you know, this poetry. It would have included both lyrics and melodies. There's also, and I think this is interesting in the context of some of the things that we're seeing in Bardcore, there is this kind of interesting malleability in terms of uh, the kind of combination of lyric and melody. Mm. That it's considered that there are, you know, lyrics that have different melodies that get associated with them. There are melodies that seem to be applied to different sets, that different sets of lyrics were used mm. for those melodies. And that that's, uh, you know, that... I have a friend from grad school who uh, teaches at IU, Liz Hubbard, who has done some of the work on the kind of manuscript tradition Hmm. surrounding troubadour poetry. And that especially when you look at that manuscript tradition, it really kind of complicates uh, our sort of understanding Hmm. of the relationship between uh, lyric and melody and troubadour poetry uh, in a lot of fascinating ways that I look forward to finding out even more about when the book comes out. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And then the final thing that I'll note is that troubadour poetry is also, I think, in a lot of ways really culturally significant in terms of its influence on modernity in terms of some of the kind of thematics of troubadour poetry. Mm. One is certainly that, you know, the this is the vast majority of it, although not all of it, is poetry about love, which yeah. still very much has a kind of outsized importance right. in some ways. But also, you know, this interesting connection to Jolene a lot of it is actually specifically adulterous love. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> that there's a lot of like, you know, lovers and like, you know, usually she's married and, uh, you know, so this and so this is a problem, but also like, you know, uh, really uh, like love is what actually matters. And, uh, you know, we have to fight against the like envious informants who are trying to tell her husband about us. Huh. Wow. <laughs> you know, that it, it makes sense that this is a, one of the tap roots of country music, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, yeah, cause that is, that is a central dynamic. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I will note about troubadour poetry, and this by the way, is also true of the, uh, the kind of Arabic poetry context and of Hebrew poetry, you know, related to that as well. This poetry is more sexually explicit than people would probably assume, <laughs> which I mentioned just because there tends to be a lot of kind of assumptions about these sort of prudishness yes, of right. the Middle Ages, which yeah. really, I would say, come more out of like Victorian medievalism right. than anything actually medieval. Yeah. But that a lot of these poetry, this poetry, you know, when you look at it, like it is talking like fairly overtly about sex. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that is actually one way that I think I like, I don't, want to hear the bard core folk rapping and I don't mm-hmm. want to hearing I don't want to hear them do sexually explicit material from any genre just because it could so easily turn into this joke that I won't like or laugh at yeah. but I do think that is actually an area where they could even go for right like if that would be an interesting thing of like let's really be real about mm-hmm. you know because pop music today right that narrative of prudishness in Right, like part of the, the, the contemporary manifestation of that is, oh, everything's so dirty and filthy now, and uh-huh. why do they have to talk like that? And of course, it's very raced and very gendered and all those things right. too. And I wonder, like, you know, it, it is always nice to remind students or just regular folks. Students don't usually need to hear it as much as just regular people who are yelling about things. Uh-huh. Like, you know, like, no, I was pretty... <laughs> right, like, dirty songs are not new. Exactly. Like, this is, yeah, this is actually a whole thing. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I wonder, that would be an interesting, you know, Bardcore 2.0 or whatever is something that kind of leaned into that as part of the... Yeah, it would be interesting to see people, to see people play with that. But yeah, but that it is this, you know, this tradition that is really kind of fundamentally oral and fundamentally performative. And I, I think it's to some extent too bad that, you know, in general, when students access this tradition, they mostly, you know, access it just, yeah. you know, given availability through sitting down and reading poems, mm. which, you know, obviously there's a place for that in terms of analyzing some of the, you know, specific language of the lyrics and all of that. So, you know, not to say that there isn't value in that, but that they're getting a really fundamentally different experience yeah. of this poem. And I mean, now I kind of want to actually, next time I teach the troubadours, I kind of want to like pair the troubadours with some bardcore. Oh man, that'd be amazing. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's actually, again, another similarity of teaching popular music of any kind, right? It's like to, to the, the logocentrism of the mm-hmm. way that we're taught to think about yeah. things is so, and, and, and it's not even the older stuff. It's like, you know, I've, I've done so much over the years with students where I have to basically, and I had to do this too when I was a student, and I thankfully had teachers who, who taught me this, right? Like, it's not just about the words, because yeah. we are taught to only analyze words or to think that words are somehow the most, you know, important way mm-hmm. that things are expressed. And not only is that not true, but if they're words in combination with performance and music and these other things, separating out the words is inherently going to change and even mm-hmm. most of the time, I think, limit the experience. Yeah, so that's definitely, you know, I think I think something else interesting that Bardcore can add in terms of thinking about, you know, some of the ways in which this music might be experienced. And, and as you kind of talked about already, I think there's kind of such interesting things happening in terms of the the way in which the kind of public and performative uh, aspect of music gets kind of moved into this digital space with a lot of this uh, this work. Yeah. Well, you already touched on the kind of Bardcore 2.0. <laughs> yeah. Usually, so the next segment it would typically be the Fabula Nostra, where you would talk about uh, a film or piece of media inspired by this one. I definitely struggled with thinking about yeah, uh, yeah. how to apply that to this. The one thing I will say is that I think it would be interesting to see different musical styles being played yes. with. Like, I think it would be, I think it would be fun to see, you know, some popular things uh, kind of transposed into like Gregorian chants. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that would be quite as uh, what's the word I'm looking for. I don't think that would work for as many things necessarily yeah. i think it would be a kind of narrower set of songs that might kind of work for that but it would be interesting to see that as a kind of side absolutely practice. absolutely you know especially because you know the album chant that came out in the mid 90s became this like out of nowhere massive pop mm-hmm. hit right and so there's actually like gregorian chants are like a somewhat recent phenomenon <laughs> in a strange way but yeah, that, that would be, that would be really interesting. And like the, I think also like, it'd be really like, I'd love to hear some people outside of the Bardcore world messing with Bardcore stuff, like, you uh-huh. know, remixing Bardcore tracks or working with, you know, like, I, I'm not saying it would always be great, but like, it'd be really cool to hear some like just straight up hip hop producers working with Bardcore folk and trying to create, cause you know, at, at their best remixes are you know, they're historical documents, on yeah. top, you know, or like there's historical analysis and they can be really powerful. So I would, that's another thing I would love mm-hmm. to hear is like the, how are people outside of Bardcore use, what, what can be done with this kind of sonic mm-hmm. orientation 
even if it's just the sonics of it, because yeah. that will lead to some, I think, really interesting stuff. And maybe some stuff that isn't so interesting, but that would be another thing that I would think would be cool to to see is like what what does bardcore look like when it's not just other bardcore folks yeah. thinking about this? And how does that how does that play out? Yeah, and in particular it could be interesting to see, you know, some of the the you know the original artists whose mm-hmm. work has been bardcore. Absolutely. To see them kind of then playing with that. So I agree. I mean yeah. I like, you know, I'm not gonna stop listening or replace, you know, the Wu Tang's casuals everything around me. Right. But it'd be kinda cool to hear the the mixed with you know yeah with their verses on top of that beat like i actually don't think that that's like there are many many worse things that could be done yeah so yeah absolutely and i feel like there's you know like i don't i feel like i feel like there are certain artists at least who would embrace that opportunity just as a chance to like do something fun and different Mm -hmm. and that'd be cool that'd be really interesting yeah no that would be fun to see Typically, there's also a, uh, a rating on yes. a scale of one to five based yes. on whatever subjective criteria we see fit. Yes. Well, and as someone who started my writing career as a music critic, I'm so happy to be able to get to rate something. Oh, right. Yeah. No. Would you like to rate first in that case? I can. Uh, I'm going to give Bardcore, I'm going to give it a four. Okay. And I'm going to give it a four with the caveat that I wouldn't necessarily imagine myself listening to hours of this. Uh-huh. Um, and I found after a few hours of listening to it that my brain was starting to melt. <laughs> but, but like, I was so struck by how, how, how much better it was than I assumed this trend was going to be. Mm-hmm. And how much, with everything we've talked about, absolutely part of this in terms of the complexities and potential risks of this, just how not terrible culturally I thought this was going to be and like not problematic I thought as I Mm -hmm. thought it was going to be and I think that there is something to be said for you know assuming that there are still humans around to write history in 50 years like there's something to be said for the, the way that the pandemic has produced and continues to produce these unexpected moments of kind of communal joy yeah you know like wordle right now or sourdough at the beginning and you know that like i think there was also that uh kind of around the same time as this i kind of kept thinking about that uh i think there was like some i think it was maybe the getty museum that kind of started it the like recreate a painting with stuff that's lying around your house oh i missed that one Wow. There was some, there was like an, I really distinctly remember there was like an excellent like recreation of uh, the, one of the unicorn tapestries in the cloisters featuring a pug. <laughs> well, perfect. Yeah. Oh man, I have to go check this out. Um, yeah, no, I to- I think I totally missed that one. Um, but yeah, I, I just think there's something to be said for the way that this cascading apocalypse has created like these totally unexpected moments of pleasure and joy that you know, again, are not, I'm not suggesting this is this utopian, un, completely unproblematic thing, but I remember, again, looking through the YouTube stuff, because YouTube really is the primary place where all of this seems to have really yeah. taken off, and the first comments, like, you know, when someone would upload in those early days, when, when Cornelius or Hildegard or whoever would upload something, and there would be folks, it's still happening, too, with every new video, it seems, there would be people, particularly in the early months of the thing, of you know, like April, May, and June of 2020, who and their their comments would be, "This is amazing! I can't believe someone's doing this. This is making me so happy." You know, yeah. like there was this sort of expression of joy that then mm-hmm. transpired. And I think 
there is something to be said for that, especially when it's not accompanied by, I think, some really potentially negative things. And yeah. that often happens with these kinds of cultural things. So, yeah, no, I'm pr- again, I cannot imagine myself listening to a lot of this stuff. I think you're right that it's background music. It mm-hmm. actually, and I don't think background background music. That's not an insult. Like that's a mm-hmm. really important role yeah. in music, right? Like I could see it being being really effective in that way. Mm-hmm. I could also imagine that after you know an hour at the most of this, I'm just going to be like, give me something that doesn't that does not does not this, please. But yeah, something, no, something with a beat. Like. Something with a beat. Something that's like not this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, and also I guess you know in terms of other like how it compares to other kind of again things like this where it's this yeah. kind of creative anachronism stuff yeah I found this kind of charming and lovely in ways that I didn't expect so I'm going to give it a 4 out of 5 I guess with the weird caveat that I have a limited space for this but uh-huh. I think listening wise yes and also much more just as a, as a thing in the world yeah uh, that you may very much enjoy if you're listening to this and you really might because a lot of people do I think it's I think it's kind of a good thing. I, yeah. I, I give it four. Yeah, I, I was actually going to give it a four point five uh, in part because I think I I have a lot of appreciation for forms of medievalism that are fun, mm. and I have a lot of kind of willingness to be generous mm. with people who are actually having fun with the Middle Ages and who aren't just kind of presenting it as kind of dour and depressing. And so kind of like medieval, like joy and medievalism, while also, you know, not being for the most part, you know, trucking in these kind of icky ways in which uh, medievalism kind of shows up and in which kind of nostalgia for the medieval period in particular shows up. I have a lot of appreciation for it in that sense. I would say that in terms of my own listening experience, I could see myself listening to a good chunk of it, but probably mostly as background music, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, is is something important and mm-hmm. is nice to have. I, you know, I think it certainly rewards occasional kind of then, you know, paying more attention. I think sitting and listening intently to Bardcore for a couple hours straight was maybe more Bardcore than I probably needed. Mm-hmm. But I think I would very much enjoy it as more of a kind of background music with occasional periods, perhaps, of more Mm -hmm. intense listening to individual songs. And it does kind of sound the same. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And that that is one limitation of this. Yes. And actually, one thing that I didn't mention before, I don't think that we talked about that I think is so interesting about this, too, without getting back into the conversation about authenticity, right, is that, Mm -hmm. like, some of these are very much based around digital music right like yeah uh, Hildegard von Blingen talks about getting about using GarageBand and getting this this package of medieval samples that she was using right then there are others who are like really into using as close as we can get to period instruments there's somebody who actually had videos where it was like they were like sitting with a lute yes and a tambourine yes exactly and like you know I love that there's that too Especially because, again, it's not getting into this. And, you know, on top of everything else, I'm also a musician. So, like, there are so many ways that people who get obsessed with their instruments and equipment can be just unbelievably annoying. And especially when they pull authenticity arguments. And, like, I don't get that sense with these books. Yeah. Yeah, which is another another thing I kind of, I kind of love. And, and so, yeah, I, that, I don't know why I just thought of that. But I, I was also sort of impressed that you get this mixture of very, very up-to-date modern technology with the 
kind of analog versions yeah. as well. But nobody seems to be pulling a kind of, well, you're not the real Bardcore. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> like, and, you know, they, they, nor- <laughs> they, they overall, they, they seem relatively chill. They seem like they're exactly. having a good time. Yep. As I said, you know, they're not necessarily invested in, you know, accuracy per se, but that, you know, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we have, you know, people like, you know, Hildegard in particular, right, who, you know, cites her sources. Exactly, yeah. You know, you get a lot of points for citing your sources. And, you know, in general, I think this is, as I said, I think this is a really kind of positive form of medievalism in a lot of ways with like my only caveat to that being, I guess that, uh, you know, it does ultimately, I would say mostly kind of center a kind of idea of the medieval past, which is mostly a sort of like, you know, at least something that is perceived as kind of white Christian men, even if the reality is more complicated. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been such a hoot. Yeah. Are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet if they so desired? They are. There are. There are. I am I am very online, as they say. Twitter is probably the best place to find me, at Charles L. Hughes 2, the number 2, at Charles L. Hughes 2. I am also on Instagram as Charles Hughes 2. I do not post that much on Instagram, but I am there. Uh, I am on TikTok, but I don't post anything. I just lurk and follow, follow people who I like. So, yeah, Twitter is definitely... Definitely the best way to find out what's going on with me and hear my hear my opinions on probably too many things. You'll probably get very sick of me, and I'll understand if you don't want to follow me anymore, but that's where I am. All right, great. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on your podcatcher of choice. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So thank you again. Oh, thank you. No, this has really been been great. And I love the podcast and thank I'm you. so happy to be a part of it. Thank you. So so glad I could uh, finally, you know, we've been talking about this for a while. So glad I could finally have you on. So thank you. Yeah, and, of course. Yeah. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. I'm